Jumin Lee, welcome to the Korea Deconstructed podcast. You're a Korean trial attorney, a former Air Force officer. And today uh, I'm really pleased to be talking with you about lots of things related to Korean politics, not only because today in which we're recording is 100 days of President Yoon Seok Yeol's time in office, but also because I see you on social media, I see you on Twitter so much, and you have these really interesting, insightful observations that always seem nuanced. They're never hot takes, but you, you commentate on this a lot. So I'm really happy to have you on here today. If we can, Jim, and I'd like to start by talking about the anti-discrimination law, because that's a, a piece that you've just written about. Now, perhaps we might just start with, for those that are listening, what is the current situation regarding anti-discrimination and protections in South Korea? Can you give us like a a basic overview or a 101 of this topic, please. Well, first of all, Professor, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, so, you know, the anti-discrimination law, obviously, it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I think the easiest way to explain it is probably this. Like any other democracy, there is an inherent constitutional right to equality in the Korean constitution. Mm. But... The way laws work is constitutions are very, very general. You need specific implementing legislation to actually enforce that right in practice. And where Korea is right now is there is no implementing legislation. So you have a constitutional right to equality in theory, mm. but in a lot of ways, discrimination is still rampant because of the lack of legislation. It's very, very hard to enforce it in court. So <clears throat> this is a, a legal problem, I guess. One of the interesting things I discovered about South Korea is that women were granted legal equality in the constitution in 1948, but we know the reality is so far behind that. So it's not about law. With this anti-discrimination, what kind of groups um, is it applying to? So obviously the LGBT Q community are in there, but it, it's more wide ranging than that, I think. Is it all people? Is it just oppressed groups or how does it work in your eyes, Jimin? Right. So the real push that's going on um, among activists in Korea right now is for a comprehensive anti-discrimination law because we have had kind of selective anti-discrimination laws in the past. Mm -hmm. There are laws against gender discrimination. Um, there are laws against discrimination of uh, people with physical disabilities. Um, so those laws are already on the books. The issue is that it, it's very inefficient to kind of go through that process one by one mm. and only you know, enshrining these rights for particular minorities when it comes up as a social issue. So where we are now is we're trying to push for a law, I think analogous um, to the US Civil Rights Act for those who are familiar. Um, that would kind of create a generalized protection in all sorts of public settings uh, for any kind of minority or oppressed group, or really not even just minorities. Um, it would prevent uh, discrimination of anybody. And I guess this would, yeah, if it protects everybody, that's a great thing. <clears throat> when you mentioned the, the Civil Rights Act of the United States, that's like the 1965 one you're talking about, yeah? Exactly. Uh, my American history knowledge is sometimes a bit <laughs> far behind. Excuse, excuse me. But, you know, in South Korea, 
it's not commonplace, but you will stump, you will sometimes see a sign somewhere, either on social media or in real life, that will say no foreigners or something like this. And it would or, or no kids, even, you know, and, and there will be these things that saying these type of people are not allowed in this establishment. Is the anti-discrimination law looking at those things like that? I'm just trying to, I guess, work out the real life applications of how this would manifest rather than just in the books, but what happens in real life? No, I think that's probably one of the most prominent examples. And I'm I'm very familiar with those signs as well. I I used to work on a US military base. And the funny thing is you'll see bars with signs saying no foreigners Mm. Uh, right next to them. You'll see bars with signs saying no Koreans. (laughs) So sometimes it's hard to keep track. That is kind of the most a prominent application of this law, which is that if a private business wants to discriminate against a particular type of person right now, there, there is effectively no way to stop them. Mm. So, and as you say, there are, there are all sorts of discrimination. One, a, a very prominent thing in Korea is the idea of a no kid zone, um, which is, you know, an area where kids are not let in, which I think is particularly problematic for me because I think it, that also becomes a no parents zone. Mm. And given the realities of Korea, where women are still responsible for most of child rearing, I think oftentimes that becomes a no mother zone. So you can see why that kind of uh, restriction is quite problematic. And right now there, there's no law that prevents that. And I think that's one thing that a anti-discrimination law would prevent. That's a very real world application. This might sound like a ridiculous question, but... Why are private companies not allowed to discriminate? So if you're, for example, and and I'm not favoring discrimination, I'm just trying to play (laughs) it out in my head. If this was my house, which I'm in right now, I would have the ability to choose who's able to come in or not, I guess. I could say, yeah, I like you, you're my friend, you can come in, this person knows. So I, I discriminate against who can come in my house. For private companies, um, that are selling things it for those it's not acceptable is that a legal issue is it a moral issue is it because they're private rather than public how does that work Jumin? so i think that's i realize you're playing devil's advocate and i think it's interesting yeah, that you yeah. bring that up because i it, it's pretty much the argument that uh the southern the, the american southern states had in opposition to a civil rights act in the 1960s oh no is, uh, i'm sorry if, <laughs> that's Oh, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're all talking in hypotheticals here. It's fine. Um, so the idea being, if you're a private business or if you're a state, even kind of an independent unit of government, why should the federal government be able to force you um, to, you know, let everyone in? And I think my, my answer to that is there there is no private business um in Korea or in any country that does not take certain benefits from society. That is, the the corporate form itself um, is an artifact of government and it wouldn't exist if government didn't exist. Um, All sorts of conveniences, um, police, running water, electricity, so there's all sorts of government provided resources that are necessary to run private businesses. So, I, so really what we're saying here is because our government um, does not tolerate discrimination and 
has not tolerated discrimination for, you know, basically since its inception, at least in theory, mm. if you are a private business who is opening your doors to the public in general, um, then you and you are taking benefits from the government, you, you should have to, on a certain level, comply with the government's values as well. And of course, you know, there are limitations to this. I'm not saying that, you know, the government can force a private business to do anything. But when it comes to very core constitutional values, um, like equality, I think the government does have the ability to impose that to a degree. Mm. Yeah, it's part of a social contract and these benefits that we accrue from being in as part of a society. <clears throat> now, in South Korea, excuse me, <clears throat> in South Korea, with this anti-discrimination law, there's lots more I want to ask about, including, you know, uh, why it doesn't pass and whether certain, well, there's disabled movements in it, there's age movements in it, there's LGBT, there's, there's kids, there's all of these things in it. And would it, you said you don't want to, these things to be passed one by one. It, why is Korea having trouble putting forward these protections? I made a point the other day that Korea's democracy is pretty good because in presidential elections, there'll be four or five different parties in a debate. The voter turnout is pretty high on, in global averages and transitions are, of power are pretty peaceful. And then somebody said to me, yeah, but David, what about the protections of various people? Is, is there something that Korea is slowly, is it a cultural thing? Is it a time thing? Is it, it does Korea have a big problem with protections or? No, I, I think it's a variety of reasons, but if I were to talk about one, mm. so I, I don't think Korea has an inherent problem with individual rights for individual protections. I think that's kind of overblown. I think it's more of an issue of where society has been until very recently and where we are going now. Because I think for a very long time, Korea has been a very homogenous society um, in terms of race, uh, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation. Not that you know LGBT people didn't exist in the past, but you know they didn't feel safe um, revealing themselves publicly in the past. So for a very long time, I think people have been allowed to persist with the idea that, well, we're all very similar anyway. Discrimination isn't really an issue. And kind of not recognizing that it is an urgent issue. And now we're seeing that issue finally reveal itself, itself to the public you know, as the LGBTQ community becomes more comfortable speaking up, as more foreigners are living and working in Korea, and, you know, and as Korea, you know, starts interfacing a lot more with the world. Um, now, I think it's becoming a much more prominent issue. So I think a lot of it comes from the fact that until recently, um, it wasn't considered as such. Do you think that that perceived homogeneity, there's certain a lot of reality to it, but uh, some of it was also put together, that perceived homogeneity was one of South Korea's strengths, one of the things that helped it overcome this authoritarianism, this, this uh, path to becoming where it is today, you know, one of the biggest economies in the world, cultural soft power producer, it's become a democracy. Um, has that perceived homogeneity in the past helped it come here? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. And I think, um, you know, it, it strikes close to home in a way, because I'm 36 year old, years old as of two days ago. Um, and 
up until the time when I was in elementary school, I remember textbooks would say, you know, the greatest strength of the Korean people is that we are one people. Mm. Um, and, you know, we have one culture and one language. And I, I think it was until recently quite in vogue to argue that our homogeneity is a strength. Um, but I think, I think that sort of conception is quite limited um, because if you look towards uh, the sort of popular movements that create the society that we live in today, um, you know, we're, it's August 6th, August 17th, we're just a couple of days removed from Liberation Day. Mm -hmm. The liberation movement had a huge feminist component um, to it. Um, if you look at the sort of people who are on the streets um, in 1987, uh, during democratization, I, I would argue that was that was a large crowd, but it wasn't just one group of people. So I think that's kind of, it's a very limiting view of history. And I also think it's kind of a manufactured uh, view of history. Uh, because in a lot of cases, change in Korea hasn't necessarily been top down from some kind of, you know, overarching superculture. Um, it's been bottom up from grassroots groups. Uh, individual interest groups, minorities, kind of, you know, um, rising up for their own rights. I completely agree with you as well, um, by the way. Uh, so for many, many years, there's been an attempt to get this anti-discrimination law through, um, and it's just not happened. I, I mean, I'm not quite sure it's about 2007 or something like this. They've been trying to put it through. And I'm just wondering why it hasn't gone through. So for example, we've just finished five years of President Moon Jae-in's administration, democratic, they had a majority to put through fast track bills, huge popularity in the polls, more so than many other presidents, uh, a human rights progressive lawyer, as it was described often in the <laughs> Western press, yeah. Um, but surely there was the opportunity and it still didn't come through. So is it, What's blocking this at the moment? Is it political uh, forknecking? Is it, uh, you, I, I won't put words in your mouth. Why isn't it coming through, Jimmy? I do think the problem is fundamentally political. And I think the issue is that, well, so you've got a conservative party and you've got a liberal party. And, you know, there's nothing, I, in my mind, there's nothing inherently preventing a conservative party from advocating for equality, for equality but just in practice, it generally doesn't work out that way. Mm. So in practice, you have to have these pushes are generally made um, by the party that's on the more liberal end of the spectrum. And I think in Korea, the reality is that the anti-discrimination law uh, just isn't a legislative priority for the liberal party. Absolutely. And, and we do see the Conservative Party, they'll talk about human rights and protections for peoples in other countries, maybe North Koreans, but they, okay. they don't always apply it to themselves. Um, is one of the things, so it's political, um, is there a, a lot of people will talk about a Christian opposition to this group, and I believe you addressed that in your piece. Um, I must admit, I was really surprised because I didn't do any research about the prevalence of Christianity in Korean society before I came here. And the history of Christianity in Korea is long with missionaries coming over, educating women, uh, poor children and things like that. They've played a big role in through 1919. What role are certain parts of Christianity playing, do you think, in this anti-discrimination law? 
No, I, I think it pay, plays a very significant part. And I think mechanically, the way it works out is this. Um, just as is the case in America, and I think in a lot of countries, um, there is a significant kind of Christian far-right movement in Korea. And this movement tends to express itself in terms of you know, social conservative values, including you know, a hostility towards rights for the LGBTQ community. Um, and in Korea, this group tends to exercise, I think, a disproportionately large amount of influence um, on politicians, uh, and politicians in the central government in particular. And there's a lot of reasons for this, I think, but one of them is has to do with kind of the demographics of the people who are allowed to participate in, in politics in Korea. Um, these people are generally overwhelmingly male um, in their 50s and 60s, and they come from white collar professions, affluent white collar professions, uh, lawyers, journalists, uh, businessmen, and the like. And this cross-section of people also just happens to be um, kind of the demographic group in Korea who is most likely um, to be affiliated with these kind of right-leaning megachurches. Mm. Um, so you have this odd situation where because kind of the both political parties are so demographically homogenous, um, both of them, not just the conservative party, are very strongly influenced by the Christian social conservative movement. And I, I do think that is a humongous um, drag that is kind of preventing this from gaining legislative traction. Because if any individual legislator um, tries to push for an anti-discrimination bill, I mean, they're gonna hear from their pastor, they're gonna hear from the church communities. And given how much of a role church communities play in mobilizing local votes in Korean politics, I think a lot of people just feel like they can't afford to go against um, these groups. Mm. Is there a reason why uh, Korean churches are so associated with power and political power? Most of the presidents that come up are, are Catholic or Protestant. And, you know, traditionally Christianity is, is, is the weak, is the oppressed, is the, you know, rich man, eye of the needle, heaven and things like that. It, it, what has meant that uh, in South Korea, Christian churches have such proximity to political and legislative power? Well, I certainly don't want to generalize, first of all. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a you know, kind of... I, I am a Christian as well. I should go to church more often. I don't go quite as often as I want to, mm -hmm. as I should. But um, so anyway, I know that there are a lot of churches in Korea that are doing really good work. So I don't mm -hmm. want to kind of paint with a broad brush here. But mm -hmm. there, there is definitely a strong affiliation between, you know, a kind of a small subset of very powerful churches and political power. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact probably that um, the people who rose to prominence um, in the aftermath of the occupation and kind of the, in the early days of the, of the Republic were U.S. educated people and U.S. educated people in that era were often U.S. educated because they were affiliated or were helped by missionary groups. Mm. So I think that has that kind of, that relationship that starts at the beginning of the Republic kind of has continued 
So a lot of the more you know powerful old money uh, political families in Korea are kind of inextricable uh, from Christianity. Mm. So I think that in a way is still playing a huge part, and it's it's generational as well, right? Because you know you're growing up, you see that all of the powerful political leaders are attending this big, these big churches. If you're say an ambitious young man who wants to get into politics. One idea you may have is that, um, you know, I, I should probably go to one of these churches as well. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's historical and it's also kind of self-perpetuating because these places have become a nexus of power. So power seeking individuals gather there. Mm. And there's association with wealth and things like that in mm. Korean church. There was also the, I guess, the dating. I always heard a lot about kyoeopas and things <laughs> like that. Um, in one of my messages to you, Jumin, I, I called you um, somebody that breaks stereotypes. And I, I don't want to focus too much on your identity, but here you are, a, a young Korean, you're 36, you're still young? Yeah, you're a young <laughs> Korean man. Um, who, I think so. <laughs> who, who goes to church, but then you advocate mm openly and publicly for the anti-discrimination law. Now, this doesn't fit some of the stereotypes or generalizations we see on social media, and I like that. Why is this issue important to you? Is it because you have a legal background? Is it, is it because it's just the right thing to do and you believe in it? Why have you focused on this? Well, I, I want to, I suppose I should push back a little on the idea that I'm in some way exceptional, because I think, you know, there, there are a lot of folks in Korea and in other places that are doing, you know, a lot of good work towards this cause. Mm. And, you know, a lot of them, I think, are, you know, not, you know, many of them are minority activists, but many of them are men as well. And, you know, in many cases, young men. So, A, don't want to claim that I'm one of a kind or anything, obviously. Mm. Um, but I think it goes back to the idea of kind of um, privilege and platform, I think. Um, so I, I consider myself, as you said, kind of, you know, I, I'm young, I'm Korean, I'm male, come from a relatively comfortable upper middle class upbringing. I've gone, I have fancy college degrees, um, I speak English. So if all of the demographic privileges that Korean society could extend, I have most of them. Um, mm. And I think what kind of led me towards talking about this and writing about this is um, it, I think it's something that helps me kind of grapple with that idea because I have all of this privilege. I, I have a platform um, for whatever reason, people follow me on Twitter. I don't know why. Um, and so I thought for a very long time about, you know, what, what the best way to use this is mm. and I think you know a lot of people there are a lot of people on Twitter talking about national security or you know, high politics North Korea all that sort of stuff um, I thought I can make the biggest difference to the extent that somebody with a Twitter account can make a difference um, by talking about this in particular and, and I just like to reaffirm that I believe it's a, a, a good thing that you do let's let's keep exploring it a little bit uh, this is perhaps a controversial question is the uh, resistance to the anti-discrimination law 
primarily based on the inclusion of the LGBT community in it. And if it, that were to be removed, then the other uh, protections would be passed and then it could move to that one. Um, mm. Is that one of the stumbling blocks? And I'm not saying they should be excluded. Mm. I want them included. But I'm just wondering, is that the biggest resistance, do you think? Or is it more broad than that? Well, I, I do think that is kind of the biggest component of it. Um, and obviously, I, I would disagree with the idea that it should be removed. And I think all of this kind of goes to the um, reason why this kind of piecemeal approach is ineffective. Mm. Because you know we we've, we're seeing in real time right now how hard it is to pass any kind of anti-discrimination law. Um, so if the question becomes, well, let's do everything else first, and then let's deal with the LGBT community later, yeah. um, I think in that situation later often becomes never. Uh, so what sort of message do we send when we kind of exclude the people most in need of protection um, just because it happens to be politically inconvenient? I think in some ways that might be more harmful than no law at all. Yeah, very well said. I, I, I sometimes come across ideas that in politics, some people are too idealistic and then they never get things done because it's all or nothing and, and there's more pragmatism is required. But absolutely, we don't want to make anybody feel excluded. Is, is one solution to this, Jumin, for example, when the uh, abortion law was changed in South Korea, that came from the Constitutional Court, didn't come from the, 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 the this is showing my complete ignorance of law, but it didn't come from the people, didn't come from the lawmakers mm. or the politicians, but it came from the top, very top down. And when Taiwan legalized gay marriage, again, that was the same, despite there being, I think, in referendums, the public didn't even support it. So with this anti-discrimination law, if, you know, the people can't get it done, if the lawmakers won't get it done, mm -hmm. is there an opportunity for the constitutional court to do something like they did with abortion? Well, we're, we're pretty much on the same boat here, Professor, because, you know, as I often feel the need to disclaim while I'm on Twitter, uh, not a Korean lawyer, don't know a whole lot about Korean law. Right. Uh, but my general sense of it, though, is that the, the constitutional court can strike down laws that are unconstitutional. So it can say, you know, uh, criminalizing abortion, that's unconstitutional, go fix that. Um, what it can't do is create legislation whole cloth. Mm. So there, there, there are limitations to what the constitutional court can do in terms of anti-discrimination. Um, now, it might be a slightly different um, example with uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, um, but a kind of the sort of comprehensive, far-reaching anti-discrimination law that we need. Mm. Um, I, I don't think that's going to come from the judiciary. That has to come um, through the National Assembly. I've noticed in South Korea that <clears throat> public opinion is such a huge barometer of things, and whether it's the gust of popular feeling or whatever expressions we use, but the Korean public hold a great power um, to influence politics, social movements, cultural things, economy. What's, you, you wrote about it a little bit in your essay oh, for Korea Pro. Um, check them out, of course. What's your take on public opinion of this? Mm -hmm. So not just the lawmakers or the politicians or, or the private businesses, but just as best as you can, I guess, the people on the street and their attitudes towards mm -hmm. anti-discrimination laws. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because... I think 
no, no issue in Korean politics kind of reveals the differences uh, between the political class and the people in general than the anti-discrimination law does, in my opinion. Because politicians treat this like it's some kind of third rail issue. Mm. Um, you know, We even talk about doing this, that's gonna come back to bite us. When you look at opinion poll after opinion poll after opinion poll, um, saying that you know the majority of people do want um, anti-discrimination, an anti-discrimination law, and even when you ask a question specifically saying, "Do you want an anti-discrimination law with LGBTQ protections?" the majority of people still say they want one. So really, it's not it's not a co- as controversial an issue as it's made out to be. Mm. Uh, and again, I think you know politicians think it is more controversial than it actually is because kind of the, the sort of people they are and the sort of people they you know affiliate themselves with. Completely agree. Just while I do this, let me try and reset my camera. It might do my face. It goes weird. Um, I completely agree with you. It, my times at universities, I just, you know, all the young people, the, the 20s, and I listen to them as, as best I can and, uh, and listen to how they think and feel about these issues. And for the most part, they're completely supportive of this. And, yeah. you know, even, even if they're church going or even if they have no mm-hmm. religious affiliation or whatever they might be amongst that generation that's now grown up on Netflix and YouTube mm-hmm. and things like that, it's just almost a, it's something that you take for granted, <laughs> right? It, it's not even really a discussion point amongst those young people, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, even in my generation, I suppose I'm slightly older than your students. Um, perhaps not slightly, perhaps quite a bit <laughs> at this point. Uh, but even among my generation, really, people born in the 80s, uh, when I talk to people about this issue, I don't get the sense that the problem is people are vociferously against an anti-discrimination law. Really, the issue is getting them to care. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is more indifference than it is hostility. And I think that holds, I think, across generations. In United States, there's a big focus on race. In Britain, there's a focus on class often. In Korea, it it seems like there's sometimes a focus on sort of class or education that Korean people, I've seen various polls on this, they Mm -hmm. do care about discrimination, Mm -hmm. but discrimination along the lines of education or opportunity or fairness. It's not like people don't care about discrimination um, that these polls would suggest, but it's not discrimination based on identity or gender matters, but more economic or opportunity or fairness. Do you have any observations on that there is focus on discrimination, just a different kind? I think that's absolutely correct. Um, You mentioned kind of the homogeneity manufactured or otherwise of the Korean people. And I think Mm. over the course of our modern history, that's expressed itself in a very strong hostility towards certain types of discrimination. you know, based on economic or educational opportunity. I, I think regional discrimination has been a huge issue in Korean politics. Um, and I think as activists, one thing we have to consider is that when we're talking about an anti-discrimination law, I think it's very important for us to stress that it's not just about LGBTQ people or it's not just about you know immigrants. It's about everyone. Yeah. And all of these sorts of traditional types of discrimination, they are important too. And an anti-discrimination law would address all of it. Um, The first person to to propose an anti-discrimination law um, in Korean politics was actually Kim Dae-jung. And he did it, I I recall it was the 97 presidential election. Mm. And 
I, I dug up his old speeches and I think what I found interesting was when he was talking about anti-discrimination, he'd always be talking about region, education, class, he'd get to gender sometimes, but you know, this and I think, you know, if, if it's good enough for Kim Dejun, I think it's a good strategy for the rest of us as well. I think I saw in one of your pieces that you were referencing Kim Dae-jung's uh, foreign affairs article in which he was responding to Lee in Singapore mm. about whether democracy is a destiny or culture. This is really going off topic, but I do a lot of reading on <laughs> Kim Dae-jung for my own academic research and stuff. Like, can you just give us perhaps an idea of Kim Dae-jung's importance to Korean mm. democracy and politics? Because mm. if I go online, I don't hear or read much about him these days. <laughs> We're so focused on today and right now that we lose some of that perspective, I think. So what what role has Kim Dae-jung played in this, Jimin? So I'm coming at your question from a slightly oblique angle, but mm. you know, it is it is genuinely surprising how quickly we seem to have forgotten all about Kim Dae-jung Kim Young-sam, the sort of, you know, the people who were basically synonymous with politics up until the late 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, part of the, so I, I suppose I should explain generally who Kim Dae-jung is. I think that's that's where you're guiding me. I mean, he's he is one of the most prominent leaders of the Korean democracy movement. Um, you know, he was president from 1997 to 2002. And He's kind of considered they're they're kind of the you know two heads of the Korean democracy movement. It's Kim Dae-jung and Kim Young-sam. Mm. Both of them became presidents after democratization, and among the two of them, although you know I, I don't know if this actually lines up, but I think people generally consider Kim Dae-jung to have been the more liberal of the two. Um, but so he is kind of hugely influential in terms of Korean modern political history. He's also um, I think the closest thing Korea has had to really a prominent political intellectual in the sense that, you know, he writes very extensively about democracy, kind of political thought. Um, so, you know, Kim Young-sam, I also have a great deal of admiration for, but he's more of a, you know, he's more of a doer than a thinker. So, um, I, as you say, you know, that, that exchange of Lee Kuan Yew from Singapore, um, his collective writings, I, I read a lot of them. And, you know, he's, I think we've forgotten about him very quickly in a way, but if, you, if you're if you making any kind of kind of political philosophy argument in Korean politics, it's very hard to avoid Kim Dae-jung's influence because he really is a singular figure. A singular figure in... I was amazed by some of his writings as well, because I would I'd be in graduate school doing international relations and things like this. And there's a lot of theory and stuff like that rather than the real world. And then I would read Kim Dae-jung and I would see he would be talking about constructivism and political theory and um, federations and things like this. And I was like, this is not just somebody mm -hmm. speak. This is highly educated with the terminology and not just uh, a vision, but some steps in how that might play out. It's it, this is completely off topic, but I think I think it's very easy to think for people from my generation. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of among the first generation of Koreans who really started going abroad uh, to study in large numbers, mm -hmm. and I think it's easy for people like us to think, well, you know, the generation above us, you know, they were a bunch of dum dums. <laughs> they were kind of all stuck in their traditional Korean ways, 
uh, might as well have been from the Joseon dynasty. But mm. that, that's if you look at the history, that's not the case at all. Um, I, being kind of the odd person I am, I sometimes entertain myself by reading um, the deliberate the transcripts from the deliberations surrounding the original Korean Constitution in 1948. Mm. Um, and if you look at the level of discussion there, like 70 years ago, a lot of these people literally grew up in the chosen, grew up in the chosen dynasty. But the level of discourse is very high, and in some ways, I would say um, higher than it is for modern politicians. <laughs> Let me ask you that quick, one quick fact about Kim Dae Jung. At his inauguration in Seoul, Michael Jackson was there. Mm. That's a fantastic, and I don't think Michael Jackson had any idea what was going on. Just all this Korean going on around him. He's just standing there with his glove on. Um, I actually asked my supervisor professor this the other day, um, my Dido Gyosunim, but I said, are politicians these days, and we can keep it in a Korean context if we want, um, but are politicians these days getting worse or am I just getting older and realizing Santa Claus isn't real? Because when you're young, politicians <laughs> seem almost of a different breed. They exist in a different paradigm. They're close to power. And we expected that even if we disagree or agree, that they're kind of smarter than us. They've done the reading and they exist. And as I grow up and I see these people taking positions of world leader around the world, <laughs> I, I'm just gobsmacked by the, the level or the lack of intelligence reading eloquence the inability to speak honestly you know with some authenticity is are the politicians getting worse or are we just getting older and more cynical <laughs> because we read old stuff do you mean I, I think it's a little bit of both probably but i do think um there is a sense that you know modern politicians particularly in korea they feel a lot less exceptional um than politicians did 20 or 30 years ago um, and I think a large part of that has to do with kind of what I like to call the calcification of the political class, because again, Korea, the path to getting into politics is very restricted. And I think increasingly a national politics in Korea is drawing from a very small subsection of the population. Um, you know, Kim Young-sam was born in a fishing village in Koche. Um, if you're born in a fishing village in Kojen today, I don't know what your path to national politics is. Or even if you're born in a middle-class family in Seoul, I don't know what your path to national politics is, um, especially if you're not a man like I am. So because we're increasing, politics is increasingly kind of closing its doors, drawing only from a very limited subsection of the politicians, I think that's part of why politicians appear to us to be increasingly limited because you know they, they don't reflect the diversity of people you and I see in everyday life. Just to be clear, um, and I agree that politicians would come from different backgrounds in the past, whether if it be President Moon Jae-in even or No Mu-hyun as well, what is the path to politics in current? Is it just, <laughs> is it socioeconomic? Is it money? you got to come from Dong and that's it or? <laughs> so that's, See, I, when I was, I, I was one of those kids, when I was 13, mm. I wanted to be president. Mm. I was that kind of person. And well, I'd, I'd ask my teachers, so how do you get into politics? And nobody would be able to give me an answer. But I think it's quite similar now as well, because I think the fundamental issue is that, you know, 
who gets into politics in Korea is 99% decided um, by the people who are already in politics. Mm. So your best shot at getting into politics probably is you know, having your father's friend be a politician. So it's not even an issue of money. But obviously, if you've got absurdly large amounts of money, you can bypass the line. Yeah. But it really is more of an issue that it's been limited to a very narrow social network to the extent that there's not really a realistic path for anyone outside of that network to get in. Which, again, is, is another form of discrimination, that kind of access to power. I, I did hear something that because of now the focus on social media and the criticisms that politicians face, many people from those small networks, Jumin, they're going to be more and more inclined to go into the private mm -hmm. sector because they'll just have a quiet life. And it's just, <laughs> and so that limited pool becomes even more limited, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I, I think that's a very good point as well. And I think that applies, you know, to every country, but I, I feel like it's becoming more and more unpleasant mm -hmm. to be a politician just because what you have to deal with in your day to day now with, you know, text messages were bad enough. Now you get threatened on Facebook, you get threatened on Twitter. Mm. Um, I think, you know, but we could have a discussion about what happened to Park Chihan uh, with the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult job. And I think a lot of talented people who have rational preferences just tend to stay away from it because, you know, it's not worth it. Yeah, we have different mediums. We have social media. Let's get to Park Ji-hyun and Lee Jun-sok and those things. Just in one second, let, let's just try to finish that anti-discrimination law conversation because the Kim Dae-jung was a lovely sidetrack, by the way, and your 13-year-old uh, uh, dreams of presidency. It's a um, this would be a very different conversation if that took place. Are you hopeful for the future of the anti-discrimination law? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm always pretty confident about South Korea and I had a lot of admiration because whatever it experiences, it, authoritarian leaders, financial crisis, civil war, it seems to find a way and overcome. It, it's making great strides. It's not perfect. It, it, it fumbles and stumbles and does all these things. But are you confident for the future of this anti-discrimination law? So I, I am cautiously optimistic because as you say, you know, I, I'll never doubt the capacity of the Korean people to get anything done. But I'm, I do think this is a bigger issue than just anti-discrimination. Because I don't think we're going to get a comprehensive anti-discrimination law done until we are able to change politics wholesale. Because this problem of kind of a limited political class of only a narrow demographic of people participating in politics, I don't think it's going away, um, not naturally. And I, I fear that you know, in 10, 20 years, Right now, we look up, we're being ruled by 50, 60-year-old men. I, I fear that in 10, 20 years, we'll look up and we will realize that we're being ruled by the same 70 and 80-year-old men. And I think to get to anti-discrimination law, I think the P Koreans who care about it, and these are you know, very often Koreans who aren't traditionally involved in politics, uh, these people really need to make an effort because it's not just about getting existing politicians to pass that law. Um, I'm fearing that might never happen. Mm. It's about kind of creating a change in politics as a whole. Is there something that 
you, I, anybody listening to this should be doing? Because we're having a conversation. Is there actual steps that people can take to help make this happen, irrespective of their influence or position identity? Look, at, at a very fundamental level, we all have one vote. Um, and I think people need to be willing to say, if you are against an anti-discrimination law, I am less likely to vote for you. Um, I, I think that's kind of at a most fundamental level what we can do. Um, beyond, I think we should all be looking to support politicians um, who have made this part of their agenda. Um, they exist, uh, many of them, you know, e even within uh, the Democratic Party, when often quite critical of, you know, some of the most prominent advocates of anti-discrimination in Korea exist within their party. It's just that they're not really given the chance to thrive or, you know, reach a larger platform within that party. So, you know, to the extent that those of us are able to make political contributions, to the extent that we are able to support uh, certain politicians on social media and otherwhere, I think we really need to look for politicians who are engaged with this issue, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that they're successful. Well said. Yeah, and support them through the voting booth and, uh, and raising attention to them. I read a, uh, a lovely line from Hannah Arendt recently uh, from Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, which was uh, a long, I paraphrase, but it was, when you vote for the lesser of two evils, do not be so quick as to forget that nevertheless you voted for evil. I thought that was quite interesting. And I, I think back to the last presidential election and it's sometimes about doing anti-votes and things like that. Right, and, right, right. you know, sometimes principles do have to matter rather than pragmatism. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's talk a bit more broadly uh, about Korean politics. So we're at 100 days. Let's start here before we get to some of the other figures. But we're at 100 days of President Yoon Suk-yeol's time in office. Um, it seems that Today, most of the things he said in the campaigns he's going through with, he's actually moved out of Chongwade. Um, he's meeting reporters on his way into the Yongsan office every time. Um, he doesn't seem to have made any catastrophic, huge blunders, but perhaps a series of smaller mistakes. His support levels are very, very low. How does a country elect a president and then immediately say they don't like him? What's going? Uh, what's going on? Do you have any observation, like on you know what's his scorecard? What's he doing? What's going on with President Yoon? Well, I, I think President Yoon's woes are both external and internal. I think, from an external standpoint, you look at how he came to prominence. Um, you know, a, a Moon Jae-in cabinet appointee, uh, yeah. traditionally considered kind of a liberal prosecutor. Um, then kind of rising towards the presidency purely by accident, because he happened to get into this highly publicized spat uh, with the former president. And that's pretty much the entirety of his political career. So I think one reason he's suffering is because he, he doesn't really have a history in politics and he doesn't have kind of a solid, solid base of people who've always supported him. Mm. He's not a familiar name in a way. Um, a lot of people supported him for a little while because I suppose they were sick and tired of Moon Jae-in. And now that they've got Moon Jae-in out of office um, and they've got this new guy, they're now realizing, well, he's not perfect either. Mm -hmm. So I think that this enchantment is kind of his external problem. Um, his internal problem is that I, I think, you know, I've, in a lot of ways, he makes good decisions. Um, I, I don't think the decision to leave Chongwa was 
inherently bad. I think there are a lot of arguments to be made for doing that. Um, but you know, I, I think a lot of things that he's done, just on a high level, they're good decisions. However, I mean, his execution is horrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look at the departure from Chongade, he could have done that thing over a year. Um, you know, remodel kind of the office in Yongsan until it's. I used to work in that office. It's it's not really suitable for a president to be working out there. I can tell you that. Um, it's remodel that area over the course of a year. You know, just stay in Chongwade while you do that. Mm. And, you know, transition gradually so people have time to acclimate themselves. He didn't want to do that. He wanted it done, you know, the day he got into office. Um, you know, this... So in, in a lot of respects, I think the fact that he's a political newcomer, I don't want to say amateur. Um, I'm sure he's a very competent person, but he kind of doesn't know the rhythms of government um, you know, what, what it takes to execute good governance yet. That's the feeling I get. And I think, you know, voters are smart. I think they instinctively get that. And they see that in his numerous public appearances, which is why I think he's struggling a bit at the moment. So the execution of the ideas, and also you mentioned one other point, Jumin, which was the um, perhaps not having that political base, because if you've been a mayor of a city or if you've been in politics for a while, you have this regional support that have been working for you, that have been voting for you. And he, he lacks all of that, doesn't he? He's just coming. Absolutely. Um, you, you, it's a bit of a whiplash comparing it to Bun Jae-in, who, you know, had an extensive political career. I think it's fair to say perhaps the most devoted political base. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some have compared it to a call of personality, uh, but I wouldn't entirely disagree with that assessment. Um, we go from that person who has this real bedrock of support who will never abandon him for any for any reason mm. to Yoon, who you know barely has a base within his own party. Um, yeah. And people are people are staying by his side right now because you know he's pre he's the president. He's been in office for a hundred days. There's a long time left. But you and I both know every Korean president has eventually hit a lame duck period where people realize well, there's no re-election. He's mm. on his way out. I don't need to care about this guy anymore. Um, and the question is, because Yoon doesn't have that traditional loyalty, will that lame duck period come sooner than everyone's expecting? Is he, this is a weird question, is he going to last five years, the president? Oh, I mean, I, I, I'd always bet on any president lasting five years. Yeah. Um, I think okay. impeachment is a really exceptional circumstance. And if you think of what people we achieved as a people, with Park, I mean, that's that's a one in a million circumstance. Mm. I, imagine if those folks just didn't throw that uh, that iPad in the dumpster, and the news report never comes out. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's just a confluence of so many rare circumstances. Nobody should ever assume that somebody's get that a president's getting impeached. Mm. And I guess just to make the, the Korean politics story even weirder, it was President Yoon that was the prosecutor when <laughs> Park Geun-hye goes in jail. And then also sort of Im Young-bak, but then also Cho Guk. Like, he, this is a man that's put behind bars some of the most powerful figures in the country from both sides of the political aisle. And now he's the president. It's, it, it's a very, very interesting situation that doesn't run along easy to decipher 
blind about what's going on. You mentioned, we, we talked about his lack of base. I just want to touch on this idea of lack of communication or execution of ideas, which is that I've often believed in South Korea, politicians and administrations, they'll make an announcement about an announcement. They'll say next week, we're going to say something about the Ministry of Education or the unification. And it gives people time to prepare and also say what they want and they don't want. And then they get the, they use their nunchi or they, they test the waters and then they react to the public opinion. That seems to be the way of doing things in Korea. But with, with Yoon's administration, they're just dropping bombshells. Like we're doing this, we're doing this and it's frustrating the people. No, that, that's an excellent point. I mean, that is the traditional rhythm of Korean politics, right? I think President Moon elevated the, um, the announcement of an announcement to an art form. You do see these <laughs> press releases coming out of the presidential office being like, oh, the president was furious about this problem at the meeting today, and he mm. instructed his ministers to do something about it. And that, that's barely even an announcement of an announcement, because oftentimes you'll see that announcement and you won't ever see the actual announcement of what they're doing about it. So, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's an old kind of traditional Korean political trick. Make it look like you're doing something, while in the meantime, you kind of test the waters and sense what people think about it. Um, and yeah, because Yoon is not a politician, I don't think he's used to that. And mm. his, I, he, he doesn't do the announcement of the announcement, he goes straight to the announcement. <laughs> and, uh, as we've seen with the recent issues with police reform, with schooling reform, um, people have not um, been too favorable to that because I think everybody sort of senses that he's skipping over a step. Mm. It made me think of that this uh, this morning. I've been editing stuff for the Hanyang University Journal, and there was one article in there, and it was about changing the the university app. You have an app which you do your online registration and attendance and chusokbu that kind of thing, and they changed the app. They made it much better, but they didn't tell the students it was happening. And this whole article was about how angry they were that they didn't tell us. So it wasn't about the app was better or it was. It's like, you've got to let us know that you're going to do something. And I was reading that going, seems to be something that comes up a lot here. If we, if we turn from President Yoon, who has done his 100 days, what's going on with the opposition? Because this is a fascinating story. Like two, three years ago, I mean, you saw the articles, Jumin, you know what was happening. Korean conservatism was dead. It wasn't coming back for decades. Mm -hmm. And now President Moon was on a high and he finished with this high support, but it wasn't enough to get him reelected. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, just in, in, in retrospect, do we, do we look at President Moon's attempts or his, his tenure then as a failure? He, he, he didn't get that re-election for his party or has the Democratic Party made a mistake by choosing Lee Jae-myung instead of, uh, you know, Lee Nagyon or something like that? Look, full disclosure, I, I was one of those people saying in 2017, you know, it's not conservatives are done. These folks are going to be in power forever. It's going to be a, you know, Japanese, Jap Japan LDP sort of situation where you know, the, the only decision we get to make is which Democratic Party politician gets to, mm. gets to win the election. Um, yeah, but I've still got all those texts and I, I'm surprised as anyone. And I think what I discounted was the Democrats didn't take that sort of golden opportunity to consolidate their part, their power that was in front of them. Uh, to build kind of a large inclusive party that would be 
impossible to remove from power, but they kind of, um, they, they reverted towards their most extreme elements. Um, the, the thing I like to say about Democrats is they're, they're, they're very inside baseball. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that expression, but it's kind yeah. of a, what's, what's a good way of saying this? They're very, they're very focused on issues that are only important perhaps to, you know, actual dues paying members of the Democratic Party. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And they, they've sort of lost the ability to communicate or appeal to a broader segment of the population. And I think part of the reason they ended up in that place is because they had that moment where it looked like they would be in pop power forever. And a lot of, you know, longtime Democratic politicians saw that as an opportunity for score settling, as opposed to an opportunity for consolidation. Um, and I think they're really struggling that right now because, and this sort of goes back to the anti-discrimination law, um, where the Democratic Party is right now doesn't really align with where liberal parties traditionally are in most democracies. Mm. Um, because in the past, um, being liberal in Korea meant that you were pro-democracy. Uh, being liberal in Korea meant that you were um, pro-unification, uh, pro-conciliation with North Korea. Um, but those issues have kind of faded into the background because we have a democracy, it's not perfect, but it's functioning. Um, and North Korea, for a variety of reasons, I think a lot of people, particularly in my generation, are at a place where we realize that South Korea has very little agency with regards to North Korea right now. Nothing we can do is going to be able to change them at this point. So for a party that was traditionally built on those pillars, I think there's a bit of a crisis of identity right now in terms of how do we create a new coalition that's going to win us elections? Um, and obviously a big part of that is kind of the party's abortive relationship um, with um, the anti-discrimination law, their problems with you know, sexual, sexual violence. Um, those, those issues have been very prominent. They are alienating traditional components of the liberal coalition. And that I think is their biggest problem because President Yoon's ratings keep going down. Their ratings aren't going up, up by as much. It's a really interesting observation, Jim, in that you say that perhaps they've achieved their, their traditional goals or the goals to which they've always been aligned are, are, are not accessible anymore, whether that's democracy, uh, whether that's certain mm -hmm. workers' rights, or whether that's North, the North Korean issue. That's been the focus of the Democratic Party. And what perhaps some people in society like you yourself are concerned about and other people is now sort of gender issues and human rights and those protections. Is it possible for the Democratic Party to realign themselves and, uh, and push towards that? We we saw what happened to Park Ji-hyun. You know, they, they brought this uh, young woman in who tried to, you know, and people will say, was she brought in because she deserved it? Was she brought in as sort of identity politics, just as this young female figure? But she seemed to get very bad treatment and pushed out the door again. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I want to address that notion of deserve. There, there's no such thing as deserve in politics. Mm -hmm. um, democracy is inherently a sort of absurd system where we do a straw poll and we give the winners absurd amounts of power. Yeah. If if your message resonates with the people, you know, deserve's got nothing to do with it. I think a big problem 
with Korean politics is this idea that, you know, you've got to pay your dues. Um, a lot of people, I think, a lot of people in politics think of politics as a bit like, you know, becoming an executive in Samsung. Mm. You start at the bottom rung, you make your way up, and when you're like 55 or 60, you'll finally be given real responsibilities. That's that's not what politics is at all. So having addressed that, um, I, you know, I, I think Park Ji-hun is very illustrative uh, of the problems that the Democratic Party is facing, because by all rights, some, someone like Park Ji-hun should be able to thrive within the Democratic Party. Mm. Um, but if she doesn't need to be made party leader, but she has high name recognition. She, by all accounts, she seems to be incredibly capable, um, shrewd political op- operator. That is someone who liberal politicians should recognize as an asset and cultivate mm. as opposed to driving her out. Um, and I can't say I was surprised, but I, I do think it speaks to kind of the narrow-mindedness of people who are in charge of the liberal side of politics right now, because they're at a moment where they need to expand their base to survive, but they're still so inward looking. Anyone who is even slightly different from they are, they are incredibly hostile. They're doing that inside baseball thing, Jimin. I'm I'm picking up on all these terminologies. You're gonna make me sound cool when I speak to my American mates. Um, uh, Is, I, w- I was going to ask you a, a little bit more about the Democratic Party here. Um, is there the Democratic Party are not like the Democratic Party in the United States mm-hmm. or in Europe? I think sometimes, you know, and I've been guilty of it in the past as well. We project our own understanding of political parties onto the Korean landscape. And I don't think things line up. The Conservative Party and the Democratic Party are not like the Conservative and Labour in the United Kingdom. I don't think they're like that in the United States either, with the Republicans and Democrats. Where are the Democratic Party on a spectrum? Are are they on the left? Are they on the right? Are they in the centre? How Mm. would you describe their positioning here, Jimin? So if I were to compare them to, say, the Democratic Party in the US or the Labour, Labour Party in the UK, Um, When you take a magnifying glass and look at those parties, they are very complex coalitions, Mm. many, many different interest groups and, you know, a variety of representatives over a broad political spectrum. Um, They're not monoliths. Now, I think the difficulty with the Korean Democratic Party is that there there are a diverse group of people in there somewhere. um, But the problem is that the people who have meaningful decision making authority, um, the people who you know are are allowed to be public facing um, come from a very small segment of the political se- spectrum, and that is um, socially quite conservative, um, economically, I guess, sort of center left, but not even really center left by Western standards, and mm-hmm. I mean, kind of focused on those issues from the '80s, the North Korea of it all, um, democratization. Um, you know, when these people talk about prosecutorial reform, um, that that is kind of just code for the for the traditional democratization issue that they've always been grappling with, because they see uh, the prosecutors as an extension of the um, military dictatorships. So you have this kind of very you have overall a very homogenous politics, but even within the party at the core lies an incredibly homogenous group of leaders. 
and they kind of run the show, which I think is a major difficulty for any party that's trying to get broad public support in modern politics. And and just for those listening that don't know, this is the party of Kim Dae-jung. This is the party of No Mu-hyun. And, and President Moon Jae-in was in that line. Um, it, currently, it's Lee Jae-myung, uh, who's still the leader. D- does he have the ability to take power? He's at the center at the moment. He'd lost the election, but very, very narrowly, like in a sliding doors moment, maybe he is the president right now. Does he have the ability to take it forward? Is he just a stopgap for something else? I, I remember during that election time, I heard many people say to me, like, I just don't know who to vote for, David. Like, I can't hold, it's holding my nose. And, and normally that's not the case in Korea. There would be one t- towards whom you'd be drawn. But currently the Democratic Party has Yi Jae-myung. Is he capable? Well, I think it's essentially kind of fait accompli at this point that he will be leading the party relatively soon. Um, you know, he's, I think he's unique within the Democratic Party in the sense that he is kind of a political outsider. He doesn't come from those traditional uh, old money demographics that we typically mm. talk, talk about when we're talking politics. But um, the issue there is twofold, I think. One, um, despite having a kind of different background, I, I don't really sense that he's that far off from other leaders in his position in terms of the issues. Um, I don't think he's ever really been a particularly vocal advocate for anti-discrimination. Um, I think he was you know, just as late to the party as everyone else in terms of uh, condemning sexual violence issues within the party. Um, and two, I mean, as you say, there, there is a sense that he is just a stopgap because right now the Democratic Party kind of has an identity crisis. Um, the people who run the party aren't in a particularly good position. So you know, some people do think that they, they're putting Lee up there to mm. take the fall. Mm. So, you know, the old leadership can emerge again after he does. How damaging do you think those acts of sexual violence within the party? I, I want to move to the Justice Party, but just before we go there, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So, um, Park Won Soon, uh, the mayor of Busan, and the third gentleman, An Chung Hee, was it, whose name is? An Hee Jung. An Hee Jung, sorry, yeah, it, the names do escape me. An Hee Jung. How. What effect, so these were serious acts of sexual violence. Some, they're arrested, others committed suicide and imprisoned. Like, did these really affect people's perception of the Democratic Party? Or was it just seen as, yeah, you politicians doing that kind of thing? I I do think it it rarely gets surfaced um, in terms of kind of the political discourse, because I think partially because the conservatives, I mean, their their record in this area is hardly spotless either. Mm. So it it doesn't get surfaced as much, but I do think it had a humongous effect on the public perception because, um, I mean, just the reality of this, it is as a liberal party, you are held to certain ideals. Um, Mm. And this wasn't just the case of, oh, well, they didn't, you know, they didn't, punish these people quickly enough. It, it was, I mean, frankly, horrific what was done here because just, you know, briefly recounting uh, the major incidents, uh, An Yi Jung, who ran for president in 2012, uh, 2017 and was a hugely popular politician, um, he was found to have um, sexually assaulted his secretary on multiple occasions. 
Um, he was, you know, obviously he resigned from his position. He was convicted, sent to prison. Um, but there is a sense that the party never really denounced him because uh, I can tell you, On got out of prison 10 days ago. And um, two Democratic Party National Assembly members were at the prison gates to greet him. Um, An's mother passed away while he was in prison. Um, and you look at that funeral, it's a, it's a who's who mm. um, of prominent Democratic Party politicians, including, I might add, uh, President Moon, the human rights lawyer, who sent to An's mother's funeral a, you know, a flower arrangement with the official presidential seal, which was something that you know, I found quite disturbing. Say, mm. Look, if, if you like this guy, if you want to express your condolences, you can do it personally, but putting kind of the power of your office behind it, you know, that, that sends a message. He, he's a convicted rapist. Um, I think after that, there was an in, incident with Solomir Pakwansu. Um, he committed suicide after it was revealed that he had been serially abusing his secretary. Um, and that's kind of where the real ugliness came out because it took an incredibly long amount of time for the party to even acknowledge that he had done anything wrong. Mm. Um, there have been books published by Democratic Party insiders arguing that Park did nothing wrong. Um, there have been, you know, all, all sorts of disturbing statements made on social media by people who should know better. And people, you know, who buy, who hold public office, um, and I think, you know, even today, I don't think you're going to be able to find a Democratic Party member who feels comfortable denouncing it fully and without reservations, because he was just a hugely powerful man, and that casts a long shadow. And less well known than the other two, but obviously, the, the mayor of Pusan was also a Democratic Party member. He you know, he's in prison right now um, for sexual harassment of a member of his staff. So the fact that three of these things happened to a presidential candidate, the mayor of the largest city in Korea, <laughs> the mayor of the second largest city in Korea, they're all from the same party. And the party has done such a obviously terrible job of reckoning with all of this, I think, just revealed to everyone that this, this is a place with you know significant structural problems. And I, I don't think they've made a genuine effort to resolve those problems even today. It's incredibly sad, isn't it? Because you would think if the if the politicians, well, if they're a little bit inept or if they've got these, but they should at least have values. They should at least sort of say, well, if you've been convicted of rape, if you've done this, we need to come out and say unreservedly, that's wrong, you know, and do that. But I completely agree that, that there hasn't been that. I believe the Democratic Party, they said they had this rule that they wouldn't put people up for positions if there was someone had lost it through um, bad means or something like that. But they immediately misconduct. get misconduct. Thank you. They immediately ran for those two mayoral positions again, which again showed that they weren't perhaps that, you know, repentant uh, of what went on. So maybe we can never stop those things happening it'd be nice if we could but it's how we react to them and maybe the democratic party's reaction wasn't good enough you seem to be saying 
Right, and it's particularly frustrating because I think, you know, even taking values and morals out of it, in this situation, you, your first instinct as a politician should be, you know, abandon the person, protect the party. Uh, you should not be, you know, putting your the political future of your party in peril mm. and your own kind of elections in peril because you can't stand to admit that this person who you looked up to actually wasn't the person who you thought he was. Um, and I, I think that just kind of goes to this problem that they have with, um, you know, kind of being unable to self-reflect, uh, to recognize problems and to kind of, you know, see that core group of leaders as anything other than invaluable. And one of the problems with that being that it's, you know, obviously the victims of these assaults and crimes that suffer, but also the people, because we lose the strength of a, an opposition party or a ruling party. Let's very, let's have a look at the Justice Party then uh, from this, and we, we get to issues, but the Justice Party, the Tongi Dang, very interesting because they would be a party that vocally uh, support anti-discrimination law, LGBT rights. Um, they would be the ones that I think we would most associate with left values in Europe or North America. They're always, they feature in presidential debates. At the last election, they received like less than a million votes, 2% of the turnout. There might be different reasons for that, but do they get more do they get more coverage than their support deserves or do we need to build them up i ask that respectfully by the way because if they're only getting 800 they don't have a big presence in the national mm. assembly mm. either yeah. but they do get a lot of coverage mm. Is it, what's going on with the justice party at the moment then jimin are they also well, out i think at this point we have to be honest with ourselves and say yes they are getting more coverage um, than they deserve as far as their political influence goes, because um, we we have had, you know, about a decade's worth of time now where conditions should have been ideal for the Justice Party to really, you know, make themselves heard and become a real functioning third party in this system, because we've had this crisis of conscience, a crisis of identity with the Democratic Party. A lot of liberal-leaning people just kind of disaffected mm. uh, with what the mainstream liberal party is doing, and nobody's expecting the Justice Party to win a presidential election, but they should be relevant at least. And despite having been given the, all of these opportunities, they failed to do so. And I think ultimately, you know, I, I don't know what's going on inside that this party, but as an outside observer at this point, we have to say it's a failure of leadership. And I, th I think you made this point. It, it is kind of dispiriting that this party who's you know, been doing progressively worse and worse and worse um, has run the same presidential candidate you know, over and over and over again. Mm. And you know, so Kim Sang-jung, she, she's been the Justice Party's candidate for a long, long time now. And I, I, you know, I credit her for things that she said on the record about you know, anti-discrimination, about gender equality, all that is very progressive and very good, but at some point, you know, you just you just have to be good at politics. And I think we're faced with an overwhelming body of evidence now that both she and you know the other people, kind of the entrenched people in Justice Party leadership, they're they're not very good at politics. Mm. 
and and it comes to the leadership this idea you mentioned it uh, a while ago that there's a worry that the people in power now will still be the same people in power 10 or 20 years that seems to have been the the problem of the justice party it won't hand over the flame they had the oldest candidate of all the the candidates at the last election and they're the progressive party it was a perfect opportunity to put somebody from you know in their late 20s early 30s up there and and, and be a representative of the people maybe age limits would have stopped that though i think you have to be 40 to run for president i, I think it's it's 40 yes i think that's right. even someone in their 40s would have been perfectly adequate well it would have been disrupted by korean statutes really <laughs> absolutely it would have done i i just think you know young people need a voice and with what's gone on with the democratic party with those uh sexual misconducts and, and crimes you've talked about with the conservatives there was the chance that they could have at least made a dent, made themselves a possible partner for a coalition or something like that, or injected the youth with enthusiasm and hope and, and someone that they could reflect. But it really seems to have missed the boat on that, um, which is sad. Yeah, it is sad. And at this point, I think people just don't believe they can get it done. Yeah. And there, there is kind of a group psychology effect of all of this, right? You know, if you see them losing again and again and again, and you know, not just losing, but losing in a dispiriting manner. Mm. Um, in elections, they should be able to be heard in. Um, and at some point, people are just like myself, believe you know, they're, they're, not, they're not capable. They're, this is not the leadership we're looking for. So I think they are kind of in a state of crisis. And I think that's reflected by what's going on with the party right now. I will mention the the Justice Party because the Justice they, they get a lot of coverage and they'll be with British ambassadors and and they'll be on Twitter and and it does get a lot of that coverage. If I mention the Justice Party uh, to a Korean person, especially if we're speaking in Korean, they'll just kind of look at me and go, "What are you talking? We're talking politics here, David. <laughs> that's that's not a serious observation to talk about Dongidang." And that might be a little bit unfair, but that's something that I feel from some Koreans when I talk to them about it. They're simply not taken seriously. Mm -hmm. uh at the moment and I, One, I think they just need a I, I think they just need a complete reboot at this point yeah they, they can keep the name but you know i think everything else probably has to change before people take them seriously again mm -hmm. let's point this towards gender Jumin, if we can because that that's something that affects we've seen with Park Ji-hyun we've seen um with the Justice Party, they're very vocal on issues of gender, whereas the other two aren't. In one of your pieces for Korea Pro, you were talking about institutional institutional misogyny, sort of old boys clubs. Gender seems to be one of the things that has really risen. I, I don't know, maybe the feminism reboot with the tragedy of the Gangnam Station murder with Kim Ji-young, Park Shibin-young saying the book uh, coming out, is gender affecting day-to-day -day Korean politics? Mm -hmm. is, is it something that if you choose these people, did Lee Jun Sok by, did he mobilize young Korean inside? I don't like using that word, but <laughs> did, did that win the election or is it just a talking point? How, how relevant is gender in Korean politics? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, obviously it's, it's a hugely important issue. Um, the Korea is, you know, despite the best efforts of many people, it is still a very misogynistic country, and it is that the inequality manifests itself in institutional ways. This just isn't just about you know, certain people 
mm. being discriminatory. It's about society as a whole being oriented in that manner. And I, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's not an important issue. I think the way it's been framed in Korean politics, perhaps, is quite harmful, because um, I, I think gender in modern Korean politics is kind of, I think, turning into a being turned into a surrogate for what the you know a, kind of a it's being turned into a substitute for what the North Korea issue used to be in the sense that it's kind of, it's framed as this extremely polarizing issue mm. where you're either on one side of the fence, you know, you're either a feminist, which, you know, in the Korean political context comes with all sorts of um, negative baggage, that term, or either you're, you know, an incel or a, you know, <laughs> young Korean man. And it, it's been framed in this binary way. And I, th I think that's actually quite fair, far from the truth, I think. You know, I, I think a lot of Korean people, even young Korean people, have quite you know progressive and moderate views on gender, um, and it, it's been mobilized as this wedge issue by politicians uh, because they they're they're in need of a wedge issue, but I think processing it in that manner it doesn't lead to productive solutions to deal with the very real problems we face today. Mm. It divides people so that the politicians can keep power i think it's perfect elite theory let's let's create these schisms or cleavages amongst the people rather than try to bring them together i i mean when when i'm in class in these lectures and i teach gender and society i i teach feminism to, to young korean people at these universities and i don't maybe because it's a university class maybe because of the environment but i don't rarely if at all see the people that i hear talked about on social media i see intelligent young adults talking to each other with slightly different views on certain things but basic principles that are same and yet the media will tell us these are complete manichean mm. binary opposites that that never the twain shall meet and <laughs> it's very damaging i think I think that's exactly right. And I'm sure you, you feel it very strongly as someone who's teaching young people. I, I, I've never, uh, obviously, you know, I'm 36. I don't meet too many people in their 20s. But I, I, I've never actually seen someone who's that kind of social media stereotype of this, you know, hateful man in his early 20s mm -hmm. or you know, the extremist militant feminist. I'm sure these people exist, but I think, you know, they're, on balance of things, they're probably a very small segment of the population. But I, mm. but for political purposes, I think these voices are being amplified on social media, in traditional media, and in politics. And I think, you know, and it's 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 we're going down a dark path, and I hope we won't be going down it for too long. Is Ejin Sok to blame for that? D did he come in with a Machiavellian plan to? <laughs> mobilize this supporter base and use that as a way to garner support irrespective of the 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 morals behind it or is it just a narrative that we've created to make things easier to understand <laughs> well i i, I so ijun suk is a bit of a difficult topic for me because we, we know each other we went okay. to college together so i, I don't want to you know i, I don't want to be too critical mm -hmm. uh, well I, I don't want to get personal about it i think is what it's 
Okay. But, you know, obviously he's said certain things that are problematic, but I, I think the problem really is um, a problem that you see across Korean politics and across the aisle. Um, because, you know, it's, if you look at the young people who are brought to prominence in both parties, really, um, a lot of them tend to, are, are people from these kind of extremist communities. Um, and I think the parties lean on these people because, you know, they're, they're useful foot soldiers, they're extremists, they follow orders, uh, they won't question uh, what, what you want them to do something. So that convenience really is what is kind of taking this issue to a lower and lower and more depressing level. And um, I, I, I think what you need is just someone who's, you know, will, who's willing to express what the majority of the people actually think, but that, that hasn't happened so far. Because mm. you need to know what the majority of the people think. And to know that, I think you have to talk to people, you have to be one of the people, and then you also have to be willing to speak the truth or, or, or not be thinking about repercussions of what you're saying. You have mm -hmm. to speak truthfully and uh, with some authenticity. It's amazing these days how often you can listen to politics in Korean or English and just be listening going, I'm not actually hearing anything. I'm just hearing these mm -hmm. empty words without a person speaking. And I think that's mm -hmm. what we're waiting for. Well, see, Professor, this is this is exactly inside baseball. Please call me, <laughs> please call me David, David. I said, you, my name is David, but this is inside baseball, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know you if you don't know anything about baseball, you see them talking about baseball on TV, mm. you won't understand anything. And I think politics is increasingly becoming like that. The verbiage, the issues that are talked about in the media, um, the personalities, it, it it's hard to keep track of this stuff. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter all the time, and sometimes I'm listening to the news and I can barely understand what's going on. Mm. It's increasingly becoming divorced from what you know normal people think about their communities. Yeah, it's b basic gatekeeping. Whereas if you were to try to break it down and express it in simple terms, normal people would, we would be able to engage with it. Are you are you positive for the future? So we've we've looked at various things and we've talked about the 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 ills and misfortunes of the Democratic Party, President Yoon, and the Justice Party agenda, but you know. I, I, I do sometimes look at South Korea with so much admiration and hope and what it achieves. And, and I live here and I'm so thankful for the safety and the environment of which it, are you, do you worry about the future of South Korean politics? Are you hopeful for the, the future of South mm -hmm. Korean politics? I think I, it's, I suppose it's similar to the answer I gave earlier in that I, I am hopeful. In, mm. the, in the long view. But at the same time, I, I don't think it's a situation where we can think, you know, business and usual, it will, as usual, it will sort itself out eventually. Um, if you look at the modern history of the Korean people over the past, you know, since liberation, there, there's always been a moment in time, I think every 20, 30 years, where we fundamentally reconsider um, the systems of our politics. And Obviously, it's it's a very different situation from, say, living under a military dictatorship. But I think we need to kind of take that attitude uh, towards politics today, which is that it's not sufficient to just 
pick the best leader who's available to us. We need a fundamental rethink mm. about who is allowed to get into politics and who is allowed to rise in prominence in politics. And if, if we can do that, you know, I, I trust the future is bright, but we, we got to identify the problem correctly first. Is it too easy now? There's nothing to fight for. We've got the democracy, we've got the rights. And it's a genuine question, I think, by the way, because now if we have Netflix and we have our own, you know, uh, individual thing and we, we're just happy with that. And if it doesn't affect me, uh, I'm quite good with that. Is it, you know, but we need to keep fighting, even though we do have democracy, we need to fight to make it better. Hmm. No, it's the big problems still exist in modern society. Um, they might not be quite as visceral as, you know, fighting Japanese imperialism or trying to win democracy, but, you know, the anti-discrimination law, mm. income inequality, human rights, um, all, rule of law, all of these things, it's, it's a process. Um, it didn't end in 1948, they didn't end in 1987, and, you know, it's not finished today. So... I don't think it's a matter of, you know, we've got it easy now. I think it's more a matter of, you know, we need to demand that the people in charge address the issues that we find important. Can I ask you, and I agree, we need to find our issues. Um, can I ask you now, just moving towards the, the end of the conversation, can I ask you, Jimin, about the Korea-America alliance? because this is something that will anger some people you know that they see the presence of around i i don't know twenty eight thousand u.s troops here at the moment with big bases down in pyongtek um you know they see that as a real symbol of korea having no sovereignty or korea having no control over certain things and other people see it it's not many countries around the world where you can see parades of people waving the flags of other nations and people will wave stars and stripes quite proudly. So um, America is an issue in South Korea that most people just don't think about. And some people really oppose and some people really support on these, these issues. President uh, Yoon Suk Yeol and Biden seem to be getting on all right. There's none of the, you know, very distasteful uh, rhetoric from President Trump that we, we we had to put up with in the past. Is this a, a fruitful relationship? Is it a beautiful one looking to last? Is it a matter of marriage of convenience? What's this one, Jumin? Look, I, well, first of all, I think if the alliance can survive Trump, it can survive anything. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> but beyond that, you know, it, it's always going to be historically a very sensitive issue because the manner in which Americans came to Korea. You know, it, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. The Japanese left, they were replaced by the Americans. And you know, that, that's always going to be a sore point. I don't think I, I, I don't think you can ever ignore that, regardless of how you feel the alliance. But getting beyond kind of the emotional level, I think the nuts and bolts of the alliance are very sound. I think um, that in the post-Trump era, the countries are I, I would like to say aligned in values once again. And you know, we're increasingly moving into an era where shared values are going to be important, both for moral reasons and for practical reasons as well. Mm. Because the countries that we find not aligned with us have very different values. Um, so I, I, my my view on the alliance is very positive. Um, and you know, I, having again worked on a US military base, having worked 
with um, the, the Americans who choose to serve in Korea. Um, I, I have very positive views and I have very positive hopes, but yeah, not not entirely sure what President Yoon was doing with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but, um, but but if you go beyond kind of the day to day issues that are sensationalized in the news, mm. I think the people who are doing the hard work out of public view, keeping the alliance going, those those people are are always you know doing their best. And I, I think that's that votes positively. My hot take on the Pelosi issue, if I may. <laughs> so I just get your feedback on this or, or, or your take is that so Nancy Pelosi, with Democratic Speaker of the House, visited Taiwan, um, which was a political statement in itself, I think, and come to Korea. Now, I heard that President Biden wasn't 100% signing off on Pelosi's visit. But I thought when she visited South Korea, if, if President Yoon's on holiday, if it was President Biden was here, he would be expected to break his holiday. You know, but I, I thought it would, it would be, it was like, if you send this official, we'll meet you with this official. Mm. And if the president's on holiday, he should be on holiday to do anything else would make him seem weak or... Do you see what I mean by that? It was like, this is my schedule. I'm sticking to that. It was a power well, move. I, I understand kind of the reciprocity component of it, but you know, I mean, just from a real politics standpoint, it's America. Presidents in the past have you know gone out of their way to meet American officials who are frankly much less important than the Speaker of the House. Mm. So you know, I, I realized I I should have a hot take about this, but I really just don't. I kind of don't understand what the motive is there, and it, it was very odd, right? Because the the <laughs> they're not even really saying why they didn't meet her it was just oh i'm on vacation mm. and there's one country in the world where, where people will cancel vacation for work events it's korea <laughs> i'm not sure i'm really not sure where this is coming from it's a mystery to me I think we're going to be saying that a lot under the next five years with President <laughs> Yoon Suk-yeol as he continues. But let's hope he gets the big decisions right. Uh, that's the most important thing for me. There's a brilliant article by La Jong-il uh, who said that, you know, these two parties, they need to work together because otherwise it's the people that suffer. Um, Jumin, I, when I reached out to have this conversation with you, I did it because I, I genuinely have been consistently impressed by things that I see from you online. And so I'd like to take this opportunity to ask you, you know, you, you've mentioned some of your backgrounds and what you've done, what you've achieved thus far. Do you have any advice for, for, for young people? I know some of my university students now listen to this and things. So I'm just wondering, you know, for, the, for young people trying to get up, trying to make their way through life, what, wisdom, what advice, what words would you impart mm. to them? Um, well, first of all, you know, thank you very much for the kind words, but I appreciate it. Um, I, I don't know if I'm quite worthy of that, <laughs> but I, I feel very welcome. So that's, that's good. Um, well, I, 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 the older I get, I try very hard not to be the kind of middle-aged Korean man who sits down young people and is like back in my day. So mm. I, I want to tread very carefully here, but um, just looking back at where I was 10, 15 years ago, um, I think one thing I've learned as I've kind of, you know, entered the workforce and had to deal with real life situations is that 
when you're young and when you're high achieving and when you know you're doing quite well for yourself, I, I think it's very easy to see kind of empathy and compassion as a weakness. Um, in that, um, you know, that to elaborate a bit, it, it, it's very easy to kind of have a worldview where you're thinking, well, you know, they they can't get this done because they're too caught up in the optics of it all. If you just didn't care about the optics, um, you know, they could get this done or they can't get, get this done because, you know, they're, they're afraid to be seen as a bad person. Yeah. If we were all more pragmatic, life would be so much better. I, I think I think that's a worldview that a lot of young people, a lot of talented young people come to have. And I think what I've learned is that it's it's incredible, it's actually incredibly easy to be purely dollars and cents and purely efficiency about everything. What is hard is when you encounter these, these situations in life where you have to make a decision um, based on empathy or based on compassion or based on things that don't show up on a balance sheet. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, I, I wish I had learned that sooner. So if there's one thing I could say, I, I, if I have any useful advice to impart to young people and particularly young people interested in politics, um, that would be it. Um, don't assume that the lens of rationality, of efficiency, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Don't, don't assume that's the answer to everything. It's when you talk to mean about you know, compassion and empathy and understanding, as you were talking about that, I was thinking of some of my uh, closest friends and you know, from, from different age groups, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And as you were saying that, I realized that they were my friends because of their, their values, you know, not profit, not how rich they are, not the positions they hold or anything like that. But I, I really do think values stay with us and they move, they move us. And so perhaps if we can also try as much as we can to demonstrate similar values, then we will also influence other people. I think that that's what youth is all about. I think it's an opportunity to try different things and figure out what your own values are. And I think that I, I'm not quite there yet either, but I think, you know, one of the keys to having a, having a fulfilling life is, you know, knowing what really motivates you and animates you. And, you know, I, I found, I think, one piece of that uh, in the work I do relating to the anti-discrimination law. And yeah, I think it's, it's good to be open-minded and kind of see these opportunities and these influences where you might not normally be looking, especially if you're into politics, because I think the most destructive thing you could possibly do with politics is reduce it to kind of a, you know, this side is good, that side is bad. Um, I, I've chosen who I support, so I don't actually need to think about the issues anymore. I'm just going to go whichever way this party goes. Mm. Um, I, I think that's probably the most destructive way to approach it, I think, you know. If you, if you are a consumer of politics, you should be thinking of what your values are. And I think politicians and parties should, you should see them as tools, tools that you use um, to achieve your, achieve your values. Rather than just support a, a team or a color or something like that, absolutely. You need to be thinking, what do I think, feel, and believe on this issue? Because I might find that on this particular issue, I support this person or, the, or this party, but on this issue, I support that. 
And so, yeah, any of this division uh, across political party lines where we, I think we're very quick to essentialize, we're, we're very quick to say, you know, if you support that party, then you must hold all of those other views associated with that party and also therefore must be bad. We essentialize one's whole being based on a couple of positions, social, economic, or cultural. And I'm not necessarily saying it's inherently bad, you know, to vote straight party line up and down a ballot. Because you know, I could I could see situations in which there is a single issue um, that overwhelms everything else where you mm. just have to hold your nose and vote in one direction. I, I think in the United States right now, I think it is that kind of situation. Because yeah. whatever your views on economics or immigration or whatever are, I, mean, I think fundamentally you have a situation where one party supports democracy and the other doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you just have to go that way. Um, I, I don't think that's the situation in Korea right now. And I don't think that's going to be the situation in Korea for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we should... We should all think about more nuanced ways of approaching things, but that's always difficult. Requires a requires a great amount of self-discipline, which sometimes even I don't have. Mm. Self-discipline and I think and humility sometimes to realize that maybe we don't have the answers and we need to find new ones or or do that. Jimmy, now I'll, I'll bring this conversation to a close with the last question, a question that I've given everyone on here thus far. And the question being not related to politics, but just more broadly. Um, we're all here together. We, we open our eyes and we come into existence and we exist on this planet, seven, eight billion of us together. What can we do to provide more values to our lives and the lives of others? What is the purpose of our existence, Jumin? What is the meaning <laughs> of life? <laughs> What is the meaning of life? I, I'm glad you saved kind of the easiest question to close out this conversation like this. <laughs> um, no, I, this overlaps a bit with my previous answer, but I think the meaning of life is really just about finding what matters to you um, and being willing to take all the time in the world that you need to find out by what matters to you and being open to new experiences, being open to new kinds of people. Um, and really, I think, meticulously, consciously developing um, that system within yourself. Because I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, they, they struggle because, and I include myself in this, we often struggle because we don't realize the things that truly matter because we haven't really had that conversation with ourselves mm-hmm. about you know, what do I actually care about? Do I actually care about this title or this you know, fancy degree or this company that I work for? Or you know, the, do I find happiness in other things? So I think really it's, it's uh, sounds, sounds grandiose, but I, I see it as kind of a journey of self-discovery and having the willingness uh, to go down that however long it takes. You, you just said having the pay, it takes time, though it does take time though. So c- can I just stress that part? Because sometimes when we're young and, or we do live in this instantaneous world where we can watch the latest episode of everything <laughs> or read it right now. And so perhaps you, you, you grew up like me where you had to wait a week 
to listen to the song or, or to buy the album or right we had to wait but this finding out what moves you what you truly believe or what interests you it does take a long time doesn't it i mean you just turned 36 i'm 40 it's still taking some time i, I think i'm about maybe a third of the way there quarter um it, it does if you asked me at age 25, what will you believe in in 15 years? Um, I, I don't think I would have believed in any of the things mm -hmm. I believe in right now. And it's always easy to think in the moment that you have all the answers, but if you don't even have the answers about yourself, how would you have the answers about the world as a whole? You know, it, I, th I think you know it's incumbent on us to constantly question both within and you know how we see the world around us beautifully said thank you jimmy <laughs> uh, it's a it's an interesting way to wrap up the conversation I, I feel like i feel like my grandfather who was a very philosophical person <laughs> that's not typically the way i express myself <laughs> was your grandfather a philosopher or just a, a, a couch philosopher. I don't ask that disrespectfully. Uh, was, uh, was he uh, a man of position? Or? My, my grandfather had a very, uh, I'm talking about a paternal grandfather. My, my maternal grandfather also had a very interesting life, but the person I'm referring to here is my paternal grandfather. He was, uh, so my great grandfather was a pastor in North Korea. So he was a very early kind of Christian pastor in the early 20th century. Um, and, you know, that didn't go all that well for him. Mm -hmm. in 1945 mm -hmm. so my my grandfather escaped to the south um, lived through the korean war um, and he was one of those people who through a missionary organization immigrated to the united states um and by his words um, I, <laughs> I don't know how much of this is a true story and how much of this is embellishment but you know he kind of mowed lawns and did the dishes until he could pay uh, for a college education and a doctorate in the United States, and he eventually became a professor of theology wow. and moved moved back to Korea. So, you know, he he had a very interesting life, and he, he passed away when I was very young. But that's kind of the thing I remember about him. Um, he's he's the sort of person to kind of opine on the, the mm. big issues, kind of metaphysical. Um, that's generally not the way that I'm wired. But you know, perhaps there is a little bit of the after all. I'm glad I helped you discover it, and that's a lovely story. <laughs> the, the idea from everything—it's—it's it's a what a story, Jumin. Thank you so much. I'm going to cut it there. That will be the that will be the <laughs> clip. Um, I I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for your honesty, man. It, it's cool, like getting to know you and and going through this kind of conversation. No, it's it's uh, had a lot of fun. Um, I, I hope we'll get to meet in person soon. Yeah, absolutely. Next time I'm in Korea. If you ever come over to Korea, uh, let me up. Let me up. Let me know or hook me up. I just mix them. I just mix them two together. Uh, let me know. We'll have coffee or something. I, I look forward to seeing you.